for uh, scripture today. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6. Again, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over another, or over against another. Good morning. As we follow through with our series, this message will come largely from the Sunday School material, um, and we've been following the scripture passages related to revitalization. The title of it in the brochure was The Judgment in the Kingdom, um, but it it's something a little more specific than that. It has to do with a, another situation that Paul was addressing. So two weeks ago, um, not all of you may have been here, but two weeks ago, we uh, looked at the conflicts that Paul was addressing in the church uh, in Galatia, and uh, more than one church there, but dealing with the different perspectives between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians and the practices related to each of those that were being debated. This week, we again reinforce Paul's strong determination to keep these young congregations from the conflicts of the world that will tar tear it apart. So Paul was dealing with, he starts these churches and he gets them going and there's a base but he gets a little firm when he sees somebody messing with and disrupting the unity of the church and disrupting the, uh, through conflicts and getting sidetracked to arguing about the wrong things. In any case, uh, this is consistent with these other congregational settings that Paul was writing to because we know that. I mean, we know that whatever God establishes, Satan will try to undo and unravel and tear apart. So I'm not sure that Paul was surprised. You think about each of these churches uh, in Galatia, especially in Corinth, even more than many, and, and also in Ephesus, 
where there was challenges to the church related to all kinds of other religious ideas and all kinds of other uh, practices that were being promoted in the name of the Lord. So he has great concern. Now, it is interesting that uh, one of the points of the passage that Doug read was related to a statement, do not go beyond what is written. And I'll share with you what uh, Mark Cowan uh, wrote about this. He said, the little saying, do not go beyond what is written, is found in Paul's argument to convince the Corinthians to be one in Christ. Somewhat like contemporary Christians who divide around their favorite theologians, uh, ideologies, the Corinthians have fragmented, breaking into factions grouped around their favorite Christian preachers. Uh, the preachers do not appear to be involved in this in any way. And that's why Paul is reaffirming in this passage that, hey, we're together, we're one. Um, and, and for you to sort of follow after Apollos and one after Paul uh, is in itself missing the point. And so one of the questions is how do we miss the point? Now, we've been talking about in our revitalization creating a, a culture of calling one another to be disciples, a culture of discipleship, not just welcome, going beyond the welcome and, what, and more than just saying one warm greeting to someone, but how do we incorporate new believers and young believers that are at a different place than we are in their faith walk? How do we incorporate them into a relationship and into a community that is living out what it says it believes? That's the challenge of this. And Paul's addressing the fact that the, the, uh, the believers in this church we're having divisions over the wrong things and over things that, that uh, the end result was more than, than destructive. And so Paul was trying to guard the, against them. Um, Cowan goes on to say, uh, the syncretistic Corinthians are doing this themselves. They're living out of their culture. They're obsessed as it was with one-upmanship, one bragging, shame, and honor, love of rhetoric, and more. Their division is thus connected with things like the missionary's preaching style, who baptized them, and who, the, and who was, uh, they financially support. Whatever the precise reasons... The Corinthians were a divided church. So for us to, to not fall into that pit, especially in a very divisive country right now with, with everyone taking sides on anything, uh, the question that we're asking today is, what is God's side? And how do we sort through the debates and the issues in a way that land us squarely on God's side. What is the main point of 1 Corinthians? The insistence, Paul's insistence, that they stop making themselves judges of each other. Only the Lord's judgment matters. They're living as if their wealth or their status are all they need. 
while the apostles served Christ in poverty and under persecution while imitating Christ. So obviously this was not only a concern for a couple of the congregations, it's a concern for churches in our country today. Do we end up missing the point? Let me tell you a little story. There was a king that went out hunting one day. In the forest, he was surprised to come across several trees uh, in which there was a target painted on them. And in each of the targets, perfectly in the center of the target was an arrow. And um, he was... um, impressed he said i've got to find the whoever the archer is that is that is this accurate in their shooting of arrows and so he he sent out uh, a crew that went in search of this person and before long they came across a boy with a bow and arrow just stepping away from another bullseye that had been perfectly struck and uh come here boy the king called to him did you really shoot these arrows or did you just simply stand to them next, stand next to the tree and drive the arrow in close up like that? I swear, my king, I shot from 100 paces each one of them. Indeed, then please join my hunting group, for you are an amazing shot. Please tell me, how did you learn to aim with such precision? The boy said... I simply looked at the tree and squarely and held my breath and let the arrow fly. Then I walked up to the tree and painted a target around the arrow. (laughs) The act of painting a bullseye after the fact is a lot like what we do in our faith, in our beliefs, in our opinions, in our practices. We decide where we want to shoot. And then we make it the center and we defend it and we make it something that we will try to get everybody else to believe and live by. And we basically are doing something that is not particularly spirit-led. We're trying to control God into our will. We're trying to essentially place our target around God's target around what we want and what we do. Is that an illustration that makes sense that, that we, we so often want to bend God around our will? And, and that's exactly where sin arrived from. It's basically saying, look, it looks good, it's pleasing to the eye, it looks delicious, we're going to eat of the fruit of the tree that has been forbidden. And, um, and we're going to do it because it makes sense to us. And Adam and Eve painted their target around the apple tree or the fruit tree that was there in the garden and basically wanted to say, well, it was okay. And we need to do a better job of discerning. We need to do a better job of of wrestling with scripture and and wrestling with our practices 
and, and make sure that we're not falling into that trap. Now let's look at a few other passages that establish that the danger uh, then at, in the church that Paul was writing to and still now of sidetracking the church and us individually from the work of Christ and his reconciling mission. Uh, let, let's look at a few of those. In Titus, Paul is writing a letter of instruction to Titus. And in Titus 3, chap, uh, chapter 3, 9 to 11, he says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. So he's instructing Titus in a very practical way to make sure and address those issues when they come up. In 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7, John writes, If we say that we have fellowship with him, meaning Christ, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And I mentioned Ephesus. In Ephesians, to the Ephesian church, Paul writes this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And there you have it. The reconciling work of Christ was to bring together and reunite those that were broken, namely between people and God, and to reunite God and us. And then also, as the second greatest commandment, uh, and, and the other week we talked about how Paul moved it up to number one at one point in one of his writings, um, where he, he said that love your neighbor as yourself was a priority on which the law actually hangs. And so reuniting, reconciling us to each other is the greatest miracle that we can experience. Because half the time we don't like each other, half the time, you know, we get to the end of many comparisons and sooner or later we're going to find something that we don't agree on that we like or don't like. And then that ends the relationship no matter how much agreement there was on tons of other things. That's just the way and nature that, that Satan tries to divide and, and what Paul is clearly re, reinforcing is that Christ's whole goal in dying on the cross was to reunite and reconcile us to each other and to God, both. And when we lose sight of that, we can gain all kinds of victories but lose the battle and lose the mission. We can get our agenda across and we can end up losing the real intent of Christ's 
reconciling work. So a revitalization is going to require a proper response to do more than just welcome one time, or but to create a culture of calling one another as disciples. And there are three things, and these really come from well, the brochure that we had put out for this for this August series, um, the three things that were in there, wise discernment, humble discussion, and godly judgment. And those are the three that I just want to focus on uh, briefly this morning. The, the first of all is wise discernment. How do we do discernment? Question has often come up. How do we know what is the right thing to do? If you are a parent and you have never gotten that question from your child uh, or all of the children, um, I would guess it's, it's either coming still, but I can remember different times questions would be, well, what do you think I should do? That's a discernment question. And, and how we listen for, for God in that answer to, to get direction uh, Proverbs 16.21 says, Anyone with a wise heart is called discerning, and pleasant speech increases learning. In Philippians, Paul said, chapter 1, verse 9, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in what? Now this is an interesting phrase. That your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That seems like a lot of hard work. It's easier for us to just decide what is right, for us to just decide what 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 opinion we've formed and it's the right thing to do rather than to do the work of discernment which is and so you know the question is how many hours have I prayed for something how many scriptures have I referenced to give some guidance in that discernment how many people have I asked for counsel have I received counsel from someone if I haven't even sought counsel from my most trusted fellow believers, but say that I have done all the discernment I can, is not true. There is counsel that we, we seek out, and we talk to our friends, we talk to those that are close to us. Especially as believers, we talk to those that we respect spiritually, and we take counsel from them. So this is all part of the discernment. So uh, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you can approve the things that are superior. In other words, and then he concludes with that word, for the fruit of righteousness. If I am not producing the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if those aren't the product of what I am doing, and how we are responding to whatever the situation is, that is, you know, as, as it was taught in scripture, you can tell every tree by its fruit. 
If that is not the fruit, one of those fruits of the Spirit, then that gives us some guidance. So we're called to do this work of discernment. And it's not as fast. It's not as easy. It's not as quick as, as just hurry and make a decision. Uh, it takes a process. And uh, the process is so that we can make sure that we're, we're in God's bullseye, not ours. That we can make sure that we're, we're not just placing our arrow and then painting our target around it but that we have the ability to really know and feel the affirmation of what God is saying to us. The second thing is this wonderful phrase, and Paul used, or in our, in our outline, we use uh, the phrase humble discussion. That means that in all that we do, there is a call for humility. One of the things that is striking is how consistent in Paul's writing he did this. And you ever think about why did Paul, why, why was that such a big thing for Paul? It was a big thing for Paul because he knew, you remember where he said, I have every reason. He had every reason to be arrogant. He had every reason. He had every qualification. He was educated. He was, he was religiously trained. He had all of the right qualifications. In fact, he was so right that he was sure he was right when he was killing the Christians. And when he encountered God on the road to Damascus, there was something that happened to him where he was able to write, all the power and authority I had was nothing compared to being reconciled in Christ. When that becomes your soul goal and the, the heart of what you're, you're after is, is the very heart of God. Suddenly, our great rationale and our great perspectives and our reasons and all of that doesn't really seem to be worth as much for the sake of the reconciling work of Christ. What are the characteristics of humility? Truly humble people think well of themselves and have a good sense of who they, who they are, but they also are aware of their mistakes, their gaps in knowledge, and their imperfections. Most importantly, they are content without being at the center of attention or getting praised for their accomplishments. We know that God's word, in God's word, that he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humility is the ability to be without pride or arrogance. It is a principal character that should be seen in those who follow Christ. Jesus is the best example of someone who faithfully followed God, laying down his life for everyone on the cross. Proverbs is filled with warnings of those who refuse to be humble. The New Testament is full of blessings for those who put others before themselves. You will miss out on the blessed abundance that life, of life that God wants if we refuse to let go of our pride and give up trying to control the outcome. To follow his purpose is to trust God 
and to be able to be humble about where we're at with that. Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And in Ephesians 4.2 it says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And one of my favorite passages and one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is James chapter 4. If you look at James chapter 4, verse 1 to 8, he talks about what causes fights and quarrels among you. He asks that question. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. It's pretty harsh words, but James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says, this is, this is a, a, an incredible question. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us? Again, he sent his son Jesus. And Jesus said, I will send my spirit to be with you. He did all of that and we ignore it and say, nope, not good enough. We have a better way. Our way is good. We're going to do it that way. And we, we decline a good and wise discernment and we do anything but take up humility. A couple of other aspects of James's passage he says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And then this was his summary. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. What a great challenge that we have from James. And you know the passage. And here's, here's, the, um, here's the one thing that I think is is distinctly different about um, about the um, uh, the act of humility and 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 letting go. Uh, Proverbs three five and six: Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. And so the third aspect of this is trusting in God. And one of the reasons that we don't let go of things, one of the reasons we hold on and we try to control the outcome is because we don't trust God is big enough to be able to actually accomplish it. And the question is, do we believe and serve a sovereign God that is all-powerful and our faithfulness does not mean that we move forward in ways that we want, but we wait upon the Lord yeah, in that passage, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Meaning that the whole point of living the faith 
is not to know exactly what's going to happen or to be able to always control the outcome. To not always get what we think is best. And that's tough. And that was at the root of what was causing divisions in most of these churches where people were basically not willing to wait on God, not willing to trust that even with our best efforts, God would work it out and make a way and God would be faithful in what he said. And so we, we have to line up everything according to how it makes sense to us rather than to be able to put our trust in God. Hebrews 11.1 1 said, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So faith does not require perfection, but consistent belief that God is in control and we are to live according to his will. A life of faith is lived in believing the promises of God to be true and clinging to them when we are uncertain. Faith does not need to see to believe that God is in control. Jeremiah 17, 7 says, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. Do we trust in God enough to be able to let go and to be able to let God? Now, I'll just say this. In our patterns of living, we can say, and how many times have, have you heard this phrase, we have every right. We have every right. Guess what? So did Jesus. He had every right. We have every reason. Well, here's all the reasons. I've got to lined up. My rationale is very, very clear. Guess what? So did Jesus. He could have called on the power of God. He could have drawn on that and wiped out anybody that would have arrested him. He had it too, but he did not. We may even have some ability to deliver our great brand of justice. Certainly, Christ did have the ability to deliver justice to those that were mistreating him and persecuting him and torturing him. He had every right, he had every reason, he had every ability, but he didn't. He humbled himself out of trust in God. And that is the amazing thing. He emptied himself for the Father's purpose, the Father's goal. He trusted the Father to know what was best and submitted to a greater plan. He trusted the Father to be able to make all things right. He gave up his own will, his rights, reasons, and abilities to let God do his work. Can we let God do his work while we remain faithful to the Holy Spirit's leading in producing fruit? Jesus disciples us to lay down our lives in loving sacrifice and trust that God at his word that he will bring his justice in the right time. And if you look at that, at the passage that was read this morning, 
Paul was saying the very thing in about the second or third verse that was written where he was talking about letting God bring justice in his time. It's not ours to bring justice to other people that we let go and we trust that God is big enough. And so whenever we try to control things and control outcomes, we essentially are saying we don't trust God to do it. God's not going to do what's right here. He's not going to make it all work out. And whether it's now or whether it's in the final judgment, one way or another, Paul is reinforcing saying, that's God's job. Let's not try and take it over. Let it go and let God. So what can we do? Well, let's work at identifying what we can control and what we can't. Secondly, we can address what we can control. We can control our disciplines. We can control our diligence in scripture. We can seek understanding and learning. Third, we can surrender what we can't control in diligent prayer, continually surrendering it to God in a very real way. Fourth, we can meditate on the promises of God um, and we can study God's word to make application. And we finally have to ultimately choose to let go because God is sovereign and take that as our motto. It, uh, it had been a good day in Mosul, Iraq. Baptist workers were making progress toward a water purification project. They met with officials, they laughed with new Iraqi friends. They were headed home for a night's rest before starting again the next morning, but they never made it home. Karen Watson, 38, along with Larry and Jean Elliott, died that evening as Iraqi extremists sprayed bullets in their passing truck. Later among her things, a letter was found by, written by Karen to be opened after her death. In it, she said, among other things, to obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory is my reward. To obey was my objective. Trust and obey, we sing. That kind of radical obedience should be the ob objective for every Christian whether you're in Iraq in dangerous places or whether you're in your living room in a chair at home. Radical obedience should be our objective. And so there's really only one requirement of a disciple of the Lord Jesus, and that is faithfulness. Faithfulness is all he asks of us. In John 14, 21, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus knew the time was coming to an end for him. And I would hope that our prayer might go something like this, the prayer of our hearts. For the Lord... Um, Lord, 
I kneel before you in humble submission and pray that in your mercy and kindness, you would help me to simply let go of all the fears and worries, problems and doubts, guilt and disappointments that seem to be filling my heart and mind so often during the course of a day. I surrender all my worries and fears to you, knowing that you are in control of all things. I ask for your guidance and direction in my life, that you may help me follow your will and not mine, not my own. Help me to have a humble heart and to rely on your strength, not my own. That prayer is a prayer for us. If we're going to be a disciple-making church, if we're going to be a place that is about disciples making disciples, we have to grow into this release of letting God do his work and letting go of control for ourselves and being faithful in training, encouraging, blessing, and empowering others from wherever they're at in their faith to eventually a point to where they are making disciples themselves, encouraging, nurturing, and blessing. As the team comes up here, we're getting ready to sing how deep the Father's love for us. And as you sing this, I want you to just reflect on and meditate on the fact that God's love was so deep for us. His desire was so much that we would know the peace that passes all understanding that Jesus talked about. A great, great peace of knowing that God's got this and that we do our best and we let God do the rest.